the book of Judges, chapter 3 this evening. While we're turning there, how many of you remember last week the um, music that came on during the prayer? Okay, now don't raise your hand here on this one. I hope none of you thought I was upset in my pause during the prayer. It actually disoriented me a little bit because it went on for a little while and God bless the sound text. I, I think sometimes when we flub a little bit it lets people know that we're human and uh, I think that builds a lot of bridges candidly. But when the music happened and then it went for a little while I thought to myself Am I hearing music? <laughs> and uh, so a little conversation began to occur, and uh, I became so intent upon the question I had to stop praying. And then I thought, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not hearing it, because I was tempted to ask you if you heard it, but what if you, didn't he you weren't hearing it? So I pulled back on that, and, I, and then I thought, I was completely disoriented now, and I think, do I have my iPod on? Am I really preaching here tonight? Sometimes I, sometimes I dream, and I'm, I'm in this pulpit. And uh, so I guess sometimes I figure, now was, what, was I, am I in that whole place or not? And so anyway, I ended up a little bit uh, disoriented. I wasn't upset at all on things. And then at that point, I was aware of how much time was going by. And uh, so then I became more self-conscious at that point. And so here we are. God really does choose the weak things of the world and uh, the base things in order to confound the wise. Here we pick things up in Judges chapter 3. And just to kind of establish the context, and we're kind of done as we got through... Uh, chapters 1 and 2, and then really through the first seven verses of chapter 3, with basically establishing the introduction uh, for the book of Judges. We've been talking about Judges for two weeks, and, and, uh, and some of you might have been thinking to yourself, where are the Judges? Well, we get to the Judges tonight in earnest, three Judges in the first chapter that we get to here in, in chapter 3. And uh, so the is children of Israel were familiar now with the whole cycle of sin that they were involved in. And we're told just to kind of establish our context now for introducing the first judge here. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord sees everything, doesn't he? And they forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and Asherahs, so the Canaanite gods they worshipped. So they, their sin, the sin of the children of Israel at this point in time was particularly grievous to the Lord, but really grievous against all of mankind, because they did two things. Not only did they cease to worship the Lord, but then they began to worship the false gods of the people of Canaan. And not only uh, did they begin to worship these false gods, and the worship of these gods was just all sensuality and pleasure and all of this kind of thing, but they began to intermarry now with the Canaanites and with these people. So not only did they disobey the Lord and not driving these people out, but as we saw last week, in intermarrying with them, they are bringing a people that God had set aside for destruction now into his family. So they were complicating things on the basis of satisfying their lust. They were complicating things for the Lord in a great measure. Again, what made their sin here at this point in time, and actually in the whole cycle, particularly dangerous and grievous, was God had attached some very fabulous plans to the Jews, to the nation of Israel. He had promised to the entire world that he would bring a Savior, a Messiah, into the world through the Jewish lineage. And here we have Jewish people now who are elevating the lusts of their flesh above the plan of God, not only for their own lives, but jeopardizing, humanly speaking, jeopardizing God's plan for the salvation of the whole world. So this thing is a real um, mess. And uh, we're told there and then in verse 8, Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot 
against Israel. I don't want to see God angry. I don't want to see Him hot angry toward me. I'm not saying He hasn't been. I'm just saying I don't want to see it. So God is really, really upset with what it is that they're doing. I'm so glad that because of the blood of Jesus, I am never going to face Him as my judge. I'm going to face Him as my Heavenly Father, and I'm going to face Jesus not as my judge, but as my Savior. And so, but this sin of theirs really made the Lord righteously angry. So, this is the sin part of the cycle, and then we begin with the bondage part of the sin cycle. So he, the Lord, sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, uh, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan uh, Rishathaim eight years. Now, God sells them into a, a bondage to a group of enemies, oppressors from Mesopotamia, so the land of the Tigris and Euphrates uh, River. And the, this group of oppressors are led by a king, Cushan Rishathaim. And that name is repeated four times by the Holy Spirit in this little short section of Scripture. Uh, it repeats it over and over again, I think, for emphasis. His name means double wickedness, or it means dark double wickedness. Now, his mom didn't name him that. I mean, what kind of a mom would that be? So this is probably a nickname that he picked up in the course of his life, a nickname that was attached to him by his enemies. Imagine being oppressed or enslaved by a king that has earned the name of dark Double wickedness. I mean, this, this guy was trouble. Now, we have a worse than dark double wickedness who wants to take us into bondage. He is wickedness off the graph, the devil himself. And, and so the oppressor that will come in and impress us, if we oppress us, if we will give him the opportunity to do it. And so this man is doubtless a very cruel and a wicked man. You notice that it took the children of Israel, in verse 9 there, eight years before they cried out to the Lord. Well, you've got to give them credit for being stubborn. I mean, stupid stubborn, but eight years. They allowed themselves to be under the bondage of dark, double wickedness before they cried out to the Lord. I don't mind being a sissy in this regard. Call out after five minutes. Call out after a day. It's always a good time to repent when we've turned from the Lord. And so here they are, though. It took them eight years to finally be broken, repent, and call out to the Lord. It is said that our brokenness, and brokenness is a valuable thing for the child of God, our brokenness is directly proportional to the time that elapses between the moment we sin and the moment we confess that sin and we repent of it. And hopefully, the longer we walk with the Lord, that period of time between those two events um, is a very, very short period of time and a shortening period of time. I thank the Lord He gets through to me much quicker not, than ever. Not any fault of His, but the fault of mine. The fact that they were willing to continue to engage in their sin for eight years until the bondage became unbearable really reveals a, a tremendous hard-heartedness on their part. And so the Lord, though, He is willing to wait, wait for them, wait for us uh, to as long as it takes until we get sick of our sin and then cry out to Him and then He will say, well, good to hear your voice under any circumstances. And uh, let's see what we can do now about that. And we read the book of Judges, and God sent these, uh, these oppressors into the lives of the children of Israel. But then it really is a book about God's deliverance and His grace. He never ne needed to send a single deliverer to the children of Israel. They really didn't deserve it, not once. But in His grace, He loved His people. He'd rise up, 
raise up these deliverers and he'd rise up himself through them and deliver them. The beautiful thing for us is anytime we want to cry out to the Lord in this kind of a condition, he will send his Holy Spirit. That's the best deliverer you can get, his Holy Spirit to come into our situation now and to begin to turn things around. So, children of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer for the children of Israel who delivered them. And here's the name of the first judge. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So here is Caleb's nephew, uh, Othniel, who we met back in the book of, of Joshua. Where, Joshua was con- where Caleb was conquering his part of the promised land, and he said to all of the men that were with him, whoever would conquer Kirjath Sefer, then he would give his uh, daughter uh, Aksa as, as wife to this man. And Othniel rose up and he conquered the city, and then he received this daughter uh, as a part of, of the reward for doing that. That's an, it's a very, very odd way. Uh, to choose a husband for your wife, uh, for your daughter. And, uh, but it worked out very, very well for Caleb here uh, because he ended up with a tremendous son-in-law, the first judge in the history of the children of Israel. Caleb, a great man of God, his son-in-law was too. Verse 10, and here is the very important thing concerning Othniel and his Uh, function as a judge to recognize here at the beginning of verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. And he went out to war, and the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, that is, allowed him to be defeated, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. In other words, he was able to put him to death as a result of, of the battle. And so the, lo- the land had rest for 40 years, and then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, uh, died. So he leads a pretty brave guy to go out, uh, obey God, and attacking old uh, double darkness. And yet the Lord gave him the victory that he promised that he would give him. And I think the single great lesson that we're intended to learn from this victory of Othniel has to do with the Holy Spirit, as I said there in verse 10, and that is that the Spirit of the Lord came, and then circle, at least in your minds, circle it in your Bible if you're so inclined, the word upon. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. That's the whole reason for Othniel's success here. And I believe that each one of the judges that God God used has a particular lesson attached to their lives that is valuable for us in our ministries and in our, our Christian life that he wants us to learn from them. And so the thing that we learn supremely from Othniel is the importance of being supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit. That word upon is a significant one because what happens to Othniel in this relationship with the Holy Spirit is what we would call the baptism with the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus spoke to the disciples immediately before his ascension. And he said, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of of the earth. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit coming upon us. There are three great Greek prepositions that are used to describe the relationship of a uh, of the Holy Spirit to a child of God. There's the Greek word para, which means alongside. We get our word parallel from it. Every single one of us as a Christian has the Holy Spirit para with us. He was with us before we were born again. He's always been with us. He will always be with us because He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all at the same time. Jesus said, I will pray the Father and He will give you another helper, speaking of the Spirit, that He may abide with you forever, para. 
even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him for He dwells with you, para, and will be in you. He's always with us. The second Greek preposition is the word, in the Greek it's en, in, our English word in. When we become born again by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us. That's a relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit that we have never had before. He comes into our lives. No one can be born again without the Holy Spirit coming inside of us. He, he's the one that brings the spiritual birth to, to our lives. And so this event of the Holy Spirit coming into our lives it w- is what makes a Christian a Christian. Every single Christian has the Holy Spirit in them or we can't be a Christian. The third Greek, Greek preposition is the word apai, and we get our English word upon from it. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is not just to have the Holy Spirit with us, not even just to have the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians, but this apai, this upon experience, is so that the Holy Spirit would also be upon our lives, that there would be such an overflow of the Holy Spirit from our lives that it would not only affect our lives, giving us the power to live a Christ-like life, but that it would then be an influence upon the people that we come into contact with as, as Christians. And so, in the Old Testament, and I think it's very valuable to understand, in the Old Testament, it is a very relatively few group of men and women in the entire history of the Old Testament who experienced this upon experience of the Holy Spirit. Very few of them. And God gave them this upon experience because He was calling them to do something very significant for Him and He gave them special power to do it. The reason I mention it is this is because when we come into the New Testament and we read that this baptism with the Holy Spirit is available to any of us as Christians, this power that we can receive just for the asking. Jesus said, if you being evil, speaking to of us as, as uh, human parents, the best of us compared to Him as a Heavenly Father. Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him? We have, as Christians, no Christian should be living one day in their Christian life independent of this experience of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Under the old covenant, they would have all loved to be able to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We have the ability to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We have the provision for us, and we can yawn a collective yawn related to it. The baptism with the Holy Spirit, that power to live a Christ-like life, that is a tremendous privilege, and it is something, again, that the Old Testament saints... I don't know what they would have given to be able to have what we have in our covenant. Now, some people look at it, and 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 I was raised with the idea that, well, I was I was basically raised on God is with you and He's in you by the Holy Spirit, and that's all there is. There is no para. There is no upon experience of the Holy Spirit. There is no baptism with the Holy Spirit. Once you're born again, you receive everything of the Holy Spirit that's available. Now, I do believe that the Bible teaches, and it's clearly biblical, that a person can come to faith in Christ, put their trust in Him, the Holy Spirit comes in them at that moment in time, and at that moment in time, as they surrender to the Lord, that they are immediately baptized with the Holy Spirit. I have met in my Christian life, I have met even in the church of my youth, who did not believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, 
I met people who are, I have met people in my Christian life who are clearly baptized with the Holy Spirit and don't believe in the experience. To run into them is to run into Christ. The joy, the love, the love for God, the love for mankind. I, don't, I just think to myself, I, I don't care what your theology is, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. As Jesus said concerning this experience in John chapter 7, He said, when you experience this, out of your innermost being will flow torrents of living water. There's just a flow out of our lives of the Holy Spirit. So it's not just power for us to live like Christ, but it's power for our lives to be a spiritual influence in the world and for our lives to be a spiritual refreshment to people. Water in the Middle East is very valuable stuff. And so here to have a torrent, a spring, a stream of water coming out of a person, that makes a person very, very valuable in the wilderness, the spiritual wilderness that this earth is. Now, here's why I believe that the baptism with the Holy Spirit, it may not always be, but you have to at least give me the right to hold the view that it can be a subsequent experience to when a person is born again. In Acts chapter 8, a couple of mere deacons go out into the uh, uh, Samaria and begin to preach the gospel. And as they preach the gospel, we're told in the passage that the people of Samaria believe the gospel. And the word believe that's used in that passage is the same word that is used in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. They have believed unto salvation. These two deacons then proceed to water baptize these new Christians. They would have never water baptized them if they were not true believers. They have the Holy Spirit with them. They have the Holy Spirit in them. When the apostles got word back in Jerusalem that there's a revival going on in the Samaria and we just got a couple of mere deacons overseeing it out there, what's God thinking about? They sent a couple of apostles out there and the apostles begin to speak to them about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. They hadn't even heard of such a thing. They immediately, and this speaks to how important the baptism of the Holy Spirit was to the early church. Without wasting a moment's time, the apostles laid hands on these new disciples and the Holy Spirit, we're told, came upon them. They'd already been born again. They'd already been water baptized. There was some period of time between the time they were born again and the time they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. So the question, it's not like a theological question of does it always happen here or does it always happen there? It can happen subsequent to salvation. The issue is, do I have as characterizing my Christian life a torrent of living water, the Holy Spirit, coming out of my life? And if I don't as a Christian, then there is a greater relationship that God has for me in related to the person of the Holy Spirit, and it's there for the asking. And so tonight, if you don't know that, if you look and say, I double darkness comes my way and I run. He gets the spanking spoon out and he clobbers me with it every time. I can't fight him. I can't. I mean, there's not, and my life, and my life is joyless, and my life has no victory. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the solution to that. I love it in the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is kind of those first eight chap, first eight verses or first eight chapters of the book. They kind of outline a person's coming to know the Lord. So the first three chapters of the book, all about the darkness of our hearts, the wickedness of man. There's none righteous, no, not one, and, and all. And so the writer is describing every person's need for a Savior. Chapter 4, the gospel pops out. In chapter 5, the person responds to the gospel and is justified by faith. 
In chapter 6, where Paul writes and declares that everybody is going to be a slave, I'm either going to be a slave to Christ or I'm going to be a slave to sin, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It made me the devil. I can't do Bob Dylan. <laughs> can't rhyme that much. Hey, ditsy bitsy spider. Nope, okay, can't get it. All right. So he did that song, so anyway. But all right, it's all right. Out of my... All right, let's get focused here. Good. Mike, could you turn on some music? Okay, all right, so, all right. Okay, so Romans chapter 6. So, in that chapter, the, this new believer settles the issue of Jesus' lordship. So he, I, I'm going to be a slave of Christ. Then what he does in Romans chapter 7 is very, very interesting because at that point, he begins now to try and live the Christian life in his own strength, in his own power, and he is a complete failure. You can do a show of hands here. How many of you, early in your Christian life, attempted to live this Christian life in your own power and in your own strength, and you were uh, fairly miserable and a great failure? Just a show of hands, so I know what kind of an audience I'm working with. All right, I'm among friends. Phew! When I was a new Christian, I mean, again, I, I knew a lot of things, but I was really didn't know a lot about this ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I tried, I tried, I huffed, I puffed, I tried to blow houses down. I tried. And, and, and so unsuccessful, so joyless in my Christian life. Such a failure. And then I came to learn about this experience, and then to ask for the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And I am by no means perfect, but I know what it is to try and live the Christian life in my own strength. And I know what it is to try and live it in the power of the Holy Spirit by asking Him to constantly be filling me with the Holy Spirit and with His power. Well, this guy in Romans chapter 7, he's trying to live this Christian life in his own strength, and he's absolutely frustrated. And he, and he expresses it in the cry, For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil that I will not do, that I practice. Ah! And the source of his frustration is how to perform what is good. He said, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is, to present, is present with me. I want to live this life, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, realizing he cannot live this Christian life in his own strength, he cries out for help that's beyond him, and he says, O wretched man that I am, who, he knows somebody else has to do it, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he moves into Romans chapter 8, which is all about the person and the work of the Holy Spirit and the life of a believer. If you've never been baptized with the Holy Spirit, if your life is not characterized by that torrent of living water, God loves us. We want to possess all that is ours in Christ, then there's a greater experience to be had. And it's there just for the asking. God, would you baptize me with your Holy Spirit? I know I'm saved. I know I'm on the way to heaven. But I, I don't have any victory over old double darkness. I don't have any victory over plain darkness. I'm struggling with a light tan on a daily basis. Give me the power, and, and he will be faithful to do it. So it's so important, this baptism with the Holy Spirit. And I love these Old Testament examples where they were baptized with the Holy Spirit because, again, it makes us realize how rich we are in Christ, that this is available to every single one of us, young, old, new Christian, older Christian, anywhere around the world. All of this is, this is available to us. So I think that's the great lesson that we're to learn from this first judge. The second judge, verse 12, 
And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Oh boy. So here is the the downward cycle uh, again, the sin. And so, as a result, the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And then he gathered to himself, uh, Eglon did, allies of Ammon and Amalek. They went, they defeated Israel, they took possession of the city of Palms, which is the city of Jericho. And so the children of Israel served Eglon of Moab 18 years. Wow, 18 years! Oh. So, it, you know, it, they, under this ruthless tyrant for 18 years, and again, it's just a, Eglon, as we're going to see, is just a picture of sin. He's a picture of the flesh, just making life miserable for the children of Israel. So, they're slow learners, but they are learners. And so, uh, after 18 years, verse 15, the children of Israel, then uh, they cried out to the Lord. And when they did cry out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, uh, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, but a Benjamite, who is a left-handed man. Now, there's, there's no detail in the Bible that isn't significant. And it's kind of ironic that you've got a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. Because Benjamin means son of my right hand. So you've got a southpaw coming out of the tribe of the son of my right hand. Now, there's a lot of lefties in the tribe of Benjamin. I think it's in chapter 20. We'll get to a little bit later that uh, there was a point in time where there were... Th- we're told that there were 300 men in the tribe of Benjamin that could sling a sling, a, a stone with a sling, and, and have it come within a hair's breadth of, of hitting its uh, target. And so if you're looking for a southpaw, you went to the, uh, Benjamin for, to pick one of them up, and here's, here's one of these guys. And so uh, interesting, got a couple, you know, things working against him a little bit, but he's a lefty for a reason, as we're going to see in, in just a moment. Well, why not make it? That moment, hmm? okay. So, by him the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So here's the deliverer, but how in the world is he going to get an audience with Eglon? That's a problem. He just didn't just walk into this guy. He's kind of the king of the whole place. So how in the world are we going to get him in, into that, that particular place? And so... How are, they, how are they going to do it? Well, the children of Israel, they decide they're going to send Ehud uh, to bring the tribute, the annual tax or extortion, basically, that Eglon was demanding of the people uh, of Israel on a yearly basis. And so he would have, was going to bring that. Now, it must have been a considerable sum because when Ehud goes there, he's got other men with him that he dismisses. So they're bringing a lot of cash to Eglon. So they decide, all right, we've got to get access to Eglon. We will send uh, Ehud to bring the tribute. Now, Ehud made himself a dagger, a bit more than a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length, and a cubit is 18 inches, so it's actually a small sword. He fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. So being left-handed, in order to get quick access to a hidden knife, it needed to be on his, his right thigh. The reason that this is probably significant for him being a lefty here is that when he gains access to the king here, um, he's going to obviously go through some kind of a security search. And apparently they just search his left leg because most people are righties and uh, they didn't search his right leg uh, for a dagger and so he was able uh, to get it through. And so he fashions this dagger, uh, fastens it to his, his leg and, uh, in order to uh, take this guy out. And so he brought tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Uh, is the only place in the Bible where anybody is, is described like this. So, and actually the description, the original language is, he's huge. So you think Jabba the Hutt. Remember the old joke? When Eglon laid around the house, he laid around the house. 
So no, he's a big guy, really a big guy. But, again, there's a spiritual side to this whole thing. Because he is a perfect picture of the flesh. And how the flesh does nothing but get bigger and bigger and bigger until it is dealt with by our deliverer, the Holy Spirit. And so he is, he is a big, big fellow. And so when uh, Ehud, he had finished presenting the tribute to the king, uh, he sent away the people who had carried the tribute with him. And so all the colleagues of Ehud, the Jews, uh, were dismissed. But he himself turned back from the, great, from the stone images which were at Gilgal, and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So here's the, prob- the other problem he has. All right, He's gotten access to the king, and, and he's called to kill this king. But how is he going to get a private audience with this king to be able to assassinate him and escape and then lead the children of Israel in a military victory against these people? So here's how he does it. He said to him, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king, and he doesn't want any of his his uh, support people or his attendants to hear these things, uh, didn't trust him. So he said, keep silence. And he then dismissed everyone who attended them from out of of the room. And he's probably letting, he's surely letting his guard down in terms of security. But he, he apparently, because the, uh, the Jews have now delivered their annual tribute, and, it, and it's an expression of subservience to him, he's probably feeling that they're no threat. And so Ehud came to him. Uh, now he was sitting upstairs, so they went to a room kind of up on a rooftop where the breezes could blow through, and he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. And then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he's got to get him up out of his seat somehow. So Ehud expects a blessing of some kind from God. So he arose from his seat. The message is is one of judgment. And so then Ehud reached with his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, thrust it into his belly. Even the hilt went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. Couldn't find a knife. This is an 18-inch sword. For he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails, New King James, came out. And uh, so this is the description of the assassination of of Eglon. I mean, the force with which he drove home that, that sword. I mean, it was just... The dagger got lost inside of him. He's dead instantly. He can't call out to anyone for, uh, to, of his servants for help. It was very, very quick. Now, the lesson related to uh, Ehud here, Ehud's use of what is clearly described in, in the passage as a two-edged sword to kill this king who was oppressing God's people and a king who is gigantic in terms of the flesh, is a very, very interesting Old Testament picture in the light of what was written by uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews, his description of the Word of God in the same way. Hebrews chapter, 12, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. God's very specific in this passage to tell us this was a two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of, of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now, a physical sword is a weapon that's known for doing its greatest damage, its most lethal damage, through penetration and piercing. And the Word of God the Bible teaches, is like a physical sword in that it penetrates, but it is sharper than any two-edged physical sword in that the Word of God, this sword, is able to penetrate into places no physical sword can penetrate into. This sword penetrates into the mind. It penetrates into the heart. It penetrates into the spirit of man. And Eglon, by his sheer size, is a graphic picture of what the Bible calls the flesh, the old man, 
the old nature that we still have from Adam and Eve and this old fallen nature that has an insatiable appetite for sin still. And if it goes unaddressed, it will grow by the day until it reaches a monstrous size. And a person can be as skinny as a rail, and yet their flesh can be as big and overfed as Eglon. Their temper, their anger, their covetousness, their lust, their pride, all of these kinds of things. Well, the reading and studying the Word of God does to our fleshly desires what this physical sword did to Eglon. And I think that it is wonderful to realize, and it's very, very true, we experience it as Christians each time we read the Word of God. But I think it's wonderful to realize that as I am reading the Word of God, it is reaching deeply into my life every single time. And it is delivering destructive blows to every area of my flesh, to every Eglon that exists inside of me that's trying to rise up and take control of my life and put me into bondage, even as Eglon put the children of Israel into bondage. And I think it's a wonderful picture in our minds as we're just simply reading the Word of God. Destructive blows are being delivered to the flesh. As Paul said, mortify the deeds of the flesh. One of the greatest ways is to be constantly and daily in God's Word and allowing it to land these lethal blows to our flesh that is always trying to rise up. And I, this is a very helpful mental image uh, for me because I want the strength of my flesh to be mortified at the beginning of each day. It's also very interesting in verse 22 we're told that when Ehud's sword went in that Eglon's entrails came out. Someone was very, very gracious on the translation committee of the new King James to call it entrails. It's a little more graphic than that. I think it's a little too sanitized if you ask me. I like it better in the old King James which declares, and the dirt came out. And the dirt that is being referred to here is to dung, to excrement. And apparently the sword penetrated Eglon's intestines and his bowel, and that's what came forth. Now that might be a little more graphic than, than some people like, but I think it's a helpful insight also. That is, the sword of the Spirit goes in. The excrement comes out. As we read our Bibles, the filth and the excrement of the world and of the flesh and of the devil is removed from our lives. So we see in Othniel the importance of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in this, right behind the importance of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we have this example of uh, Ehud, which teaches us the importance of the Word of God in order that we might not only remain unoppressed by the enemies of, of, of the world, but that we might even be used by God to be deliverers of people, which is what we, how we want our lives to be used in, in our moment in, in human history. And so, verse 23, Ehud then went out through the porch... And uh, after having uh, assassinated him, went through the, this upper room. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him, locked them, because uh, he knew the servants would be coming pretty quickly to check things out. And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look for him. And to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. And so they said, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. That's a very, very nice way of saying he's probably going to the bathroom. That's what it is literally in, in the Hebrew. And uh, so this is, they say, well, you know, let, 
We don't want to disturb him there, so let's give him the privacy that, that he needs. And so they waited till they were embarrassed. I mean, they were ashamed at how long, you know, that here we're supposed to be servants and taking care of him, and how long is he taking on this? And so they were embarrassed, and still he had not opened the doors of the upper room, and therefore they took the key, they opened them, and there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud, he escaped while they delayed and passed through the stone images and escaped to uh, Sirah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim. The children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. And then he said to them, Follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And so they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, in other words, cut off their path of retreat, didn't allow anyone to cross over, so it was an encirclement, tremendous military uh, maneuver here. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, and not a man escaped. And so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And 80 years represents the longest period uh, of uh, peace during the turmoil of the era uh, of the judges. Then we come to the third judge, and he's very, very interesting, uh, though only a verse is committed to him. That's all we need to know about him. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goat, and he also delivered Israel. So, Shamgar, the son of Anath, uh, the oppressors of the children of Israel at this time were the Philistines, and he was used by God to deliver the children of Israel from the Philistines. And the method, we're told here, is by killing 600 of them in battle with an ox goad. Now, that's not much of a weapon. Ox goad was just a very, very stout wooden stick that had metal on one end for jabbing and directing the oxen when you were plowing. And then it had kind of a spade shape, a flat shape on the other end that was used to clean uh, the plow blade when that was necessary. That's what an ox goad was, normally about eight feet long. Evidently, he had no other weapon available. And so what Shamgar did is he went with what he had. Didn't complain and say, God, listen, if you're going to send me out to deliver the children of Israel against the Philistines, you better give me a proper spear, you better give me a proper sword. And he didn't do that. He just obeyed God with what he had. When God calls us, we are to go with what we've got. And then trust God to add all of the grace that is necessary to the feebleness of our weapons in order for us to be successful. And he will always do it. One of the things that we struggle with, well, I struggle with and I assume you do, is I'm just basically interested in victory. But God's got this funny thing. He also wants to get the glory for it. So for him to get the glory for it, it can't be like this equal thing. Or I'm going to take the glory. And everybody else will think it was an equal thing. Kyle's great. But when he makes the odds and he, and he makes the calling and he makes the things that he gives to us so feeble... He makes the odds so great against us, and then He brings the victory, then He gets to accomplish the two things that He wants to do and what He is deserving of, and that is He gets the victory which He wants us to have, but He gets it in a way that He gets the glory, which means we're always going to be in at least slightly over our head any time He calls us to do something. And I always notice... When God calls me to do something, and I'm at least slightly over my head. And I want to discuss it with him a little bit. And then I have to remember, oh, this is how he gets the glory. In our service to the Lord, I, think, I don't think there's a single person that the Lord uses who is not 
painfully aware of how ill-equipped we are for what God is calling us to do. If a person is called by God to do something and they are not conscious of how ill-equipped they are in and of themselves to do what God is calling them to do, then I just look and say, wow, are the first two years of their ministry going to be hard? (laughs) But most of us are very conscious of the fact that we are a mere five loaves and two fish before a crowd of 5,000 men. God's calling us to do something that is impossible to do in the natural. And, and, but we must never forget that God will always supernaturally add to his call on our lives whatever he knows we need to be successful. Shamgar is just a farmer. Sorry, farmers. But he's just a farmer. He's not a seminary professor. He's not a Green Beret. He's not a Navy SEAL. But he he is who God wanted to use. And Shamgar added to the call of God his faith, and we have to do the same thing. And I think the great lesson from Shamgar is that when God calls us, we need to obey him. Go with what you've got. Go with what you've got. And God will add whatever is necessary to that to make you successful and to bring glory to himself. And so this is as far as we'll get this evening. And I just want to recap the lessons of the first three judges. Othniel speaks to us of the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives and our ministry, specifically related to the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It is the power to overcome double darkness in our lives. If you've never been baptized with the Holy Spirit, the worship team is going to come up in just a moment and lead us in a meditative set of worship. You've never been baptized with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to say, um, you don't have to repeat to God everything that I said earlier. (laughs) It's a lot easier than that. You just say, God, whatever he was talking about, I don't have a victory over the devil in my life right now. It's not practical. He whoops me every time, and I don't want it to be that way any longer. Would you give me the power to make a stand against him and be victorious? And the Lord will give us that power tonight. It's there for the asking. Ehud speaks to us of the importance of giving the Word of God a deep, penetrating place in our lives as we do battle with our Eglon, the flesh. And Shamgar teaches us that when God calls us to do something, we need to go with what we've got, and God will be very able to take care of the rest. And so if the worship team would come forward and lead us in worship as we allow God's Word to move around inside of our hearts and our minds.